0: One week season.
1: All right, OWS fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes. Thanks for coming and hanging out with us on another beautiful Saturday. I am still trying to get over this little sickness, so I'm going to try and mute if I have to cough, not cough your ears off. Um, Again, it's X's fault, so we all know that by now. So that is good. Uh, Giving credit where credit is due. Thank you, X, for getting me sick. (laughs) Yeah, You're welcome. Enjoy. With with, (laughs) With that being said. We're gonna jump right into it this week. Obviously, JM is with us this week, so we are going to do our best to not uh talk over each other. No, I'm just kidding. We should be just fine with three of us. Um, but I'm excited to have JM uh here chatting with us and shooting the shit with X and all of y'all. So quite the treat, and we will get right into it. Start. was
0: like there's some pressure right now, right? Like the boss is in the building.
1: Yeah, we gotta be on our sure. game. Yeah, I'm not going to. I'm glad we don't have uh, webcams because I'm completely nude right now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's funny um, how often I'll be on a call, even with like Aaron, I'll be on a call or when we bring on new people to the site and they'll be like, uh, or Aaron will be like, man, I was just listening to two podcasts of yours. It's funny to be on the phone. That's kind of how I feel right now because each Saturday night listening to you guys has been part of my process. So. I feel like I'm a little bit starstruck by the the podcast that I hired you guys to put
0: together. That's really funny. I remember the first time. So, like the story of how I started writing for AWS is a funny one because it involves like some borderline harassment. Where you know I had this idea that I could start writing showdown content, and I had actually written a few showdown articles for Daily Roto. Um, when Showdown st- started coming out as a format, and I started messaging Jam on Twitter, being like, "Hey, uh, I'd love to talk to you about writing content for Showdown," and like, it was literally months, and I just kept sending him messages <laughs> over and over, and like, I started feeling really like creepy about it. Um, and then finally, like, and then he made some comment on Twitter or somewhere, or maybe in one of his podcasts, about how like he basically has Twitter like muted a large portion of the year because he just can't deal with all the notifications and messages and blah blah blah, and he's like, you know, he's trying to like tune out that noise and so i was like okay i'll do one last one that i got like because at this point i'm just becoming a creep and i sent him one last one and then he was like yes let's talk and so i basically cyber stalked my way into this job
2: <laughs> well also uh, i don't know if you remember this but we you and i had hung out before i'm sure you remember mm-hmm. that uh and yeah. I didn't connect that you were the person I'd hung out with before we had a whole conversation. And then I was like, oh, you live in Portland and we scheduled to go to lunch. And and it wasn't until I showed up at lunch and saw you and I was like, oh, (laughs) you're you're who you are. I literally did not connect that at all.
0: Yeah, that's right. I remember that. Well, I mean, like who remembers the Zandemir, right? Like, it wasn't like I was some name in the DFS industry, and like, I think we just met when you moved to the Portland, and like, we watched some Sunday games together once.
2: Indeed, indeed. Uh, yeah, this is actually our first podcast together too. First podcast with HiLo as well. So yeah, I'm I'm excited to be on. Excited to get started.
1: All, All right. right, boys. We'll get it started as we typically do here, and. Talk about uh, macro and then narrow it down here from there. So obviously, kind of the theme of the week this week is the injuries, primarily at the running back position. Um, It's a little bit interesting to kind of pick our way through here because we don't have the same setup, one, from a a matchup perspective when we talk about these fill-in running backs, and two, from a guaranteed volume perspective that we had – you know, last week with Alexander Madison, and then I think it was week two or week three, the other week when Alexander Madison was the fill-in. So it's a definite interesting dynamic. X, what are you, how are you, I guess, viewing the injuries at the running back position and adjusting your process yeah there's like
0: i remember remember like loading up DraftKings on like thursday and i just like loaded up the contest screen and i went to the running back position and it was just like q tags like all the way down like every single running back was questionable i was like what is going on this week um and so it's creating some wildness so like I'm generally more willing to embrace running back chalk than wide receiver chalk because running back is a lower variance position. Um, but that said, like, I do feel that this week is pushing people onto some running backs that are a little, I don't want to say bad plays, right? Like, I don't think some of these cheap running backs are bad plays by any means, but I would say they're, they they come with more risk than I think people maybe want to admit, So, like, let's set aside Kareem Hunt for a minute because he's a separate case. But, like, Khalil Herbert looked good last week, but he's on a completely broken offense that is projected to score, like, 19 points. Um, We don't know if he's going to have any pass game work, right? Like, you've got Daryl Williams – on an offense that wants to score through the air. Um, and again, we don't know what his role is going to be. Like, is he going to be the, the the guy? Is he going to be the two-down grinder? How much is Jarek McKinnon going to work in? Like, we just don't know. We've got Devonte Booker on in a pretty bad matchup on uh, also somewhat of a broken offense, right? Like an offense is projected to score like 22 points or something like that. So some of these plays are somewhat fragile. And I think that the field may... They're not bad plays, but I think that the field may be underweighting the fragility of some of them. There are also a couple of questionable tags leading into the afternoon games that want to want me to make me uh, retain some flexibility. And the two there are Melvin Gordon um, and Damian Harris. And so I'm interested in Jams' take on the latter one because he's our you know, resident Patriots expert. But if Melvin Gordon's out, he's been in a 50-50 split with Javante Williams, uh, who would be 5K at home as a home favorite and three down roll um uh, with past game work you know he's not going to get 100% of the touches um but he should get 70 to 80% of the running back opportunities at 5k in a good matchup so like he's someone I will have some flexibility to move to and also just because the ownership will be super favorable on those like late swap situations if we don't get Melvin Gordon news overnight and then similarly Damian Harris is questionable which could open up Ramondre Stevenson maybe who was like a preseason stud um and then like fumbled in week 1 and we really haven't seen him much since Um, But if Harris misses, you know, we know that New England wants to run a lot. We know that the running match, the matchup is favorable for the run, Um, even with a somewhat broken offensive line. I think that's still the way they're going to prefer to attack. So like that could open up some opportunities. And again, very low ownership. So like the way I think of it right now is there's a lot of running backs in play this week. Um, I think that I, I really like Hunt. I think Hunt's clearly the best on play on paper play of the week, um, but there's still you know any on paper any play can fail, so I don't think that means you have to lock him in 100. I don't think he's as strong a play as Alexander Madison was last week, um, but then there's a lot of other running back plays that are slightly more priced up because I think almost I feel like almost everyone's going to have a at least one like sub 6k running back on their roster between like Herbert and Booker. Uh, and Hubbard and Daryl Williams, like everyone's going to like, almost everyone's going to have a sub six K running back. So like from a roster construction standpoint, I think you can make a case that some of the more expensive running backs are going overlooked um, because as the field is flocking to the cheap ones. So I'm interested in some, in some like double pay up running back builds. Uh, I'm also interested in just some, uh, some other mid tier running backs that I think are getting uh, a little lost in the shuffle. Um, with uh with all the the value and all the the backups coming in and so those are guys like joe mixon in a phenomenal matchup against detroit um antonio gibson in a wonderful matchup against kansas city as long as the game can stay close enough for him dalvin cook is Cheaper than he should be, right? Like he's pay up. I guess he's. I think he's the most expensive running back on the slate, isn't he? Um. I guess. I, I guess. Actually, I guess Eckler is. Um. But so I'm. I'm really interested in like in the pay up running backs, and I'm really interested in some of the mid tier running backs where we we know their role and we don't necessarily have to kind of guess at what we think the role is likely to be. That was a lot.
1: Yeah. No. I, I absolutely love it. There was two. There's two guys that really stand out to me from a like on paper, and I'm talking about filling guys like on paper. The best plays of like the bunch of the six guys who are like filling in this week, and that's Chuba Hubbard and um, Kareem Point, Obviously, those are on paper the best plays. But what I really want to stress a little, or I guess I want people thinking a little bit more about this week is where are we getting certainty? And that comes from you know a couple of things, you know volume. Uh, I guess the the four. Pyramid, I would say, of how we evaluate a play: um, opportunity, matchup, cost, and talent. Right? We we've hyped on that for a while. So those two guys are for me the the two of the you know five or six filling guys here um, who check those four boxes pretty significantly. Um, obviously, we have you know a little bit of uncertainty for both of those guys for. Um, for the Browns, we don't know how heavily Kareem Hunt's workload is really going to increase. For Chuba Hubbard, his kind of workload has been a little bit all over the place. Um, positive trend. It's coming up. You know, obviously uh, last week, 29, 30 touches, something like that. But there's still a bunch of unknowns with these plays. And then, JM, I'm going to go to you for uh, to kind of round out the running back position here. We kind of me, uh, touched on sorry. the. We kind of touched on the, uh, the high price guys, and we touched on, obviously, all these fill-in guys. Um, but there's a couple of guys who are priced in that mid-tier. One of them was touched on in Antonio Gibson, Joe Mixon, and then Jonathan Taylor. How are you handling this kind of mid-tier of pricing this week, Jam?
2: So I might have missed a little bit, because I, I that's what Zandemir was about to chime in with. I'd said, <laughs> don't throw it to me yet. Um, I just got back. I heard all of Zandemir's, Thoughts And Hilo, I missed yours. I had to help get the kids loaded into the car. Dad life, hashtag. Um, but yeah, I think that the... It was disappointing to look at updated ownership today and see Khalil Herbert at like 25%. I mentioned in, I think it was the player grid that, or maybe it was in the Angles podcast, that after I watched Khalil Herbert's game, I almost put him in, a, in as a blue chip. And then as I waited and let those thoughts settle, I was like, well, he's not a blue chip play, right? He caught 34 passes in his entire college career. He ran seven pass routes last week. I was going to bump him down to light blue. And then I sat I sat with it a little longer and I was like, okay, he's not, a, he's not even a light blue play. Like the chances of him failing are much higher than a light blue play. He just could have a good game. Now that he's going to be this super chalky play, I'm inclined to be completely off of him. And now that Daryl Williams, right? Like Daryl Williams, we know how the Chiefs use running backs. We know that Jarek McKinnon's going to be on the field. It's not like Daryl Williams is going to go get 22 to 25 touches. And I think that one of the things that, and we do it at OWS and not by we, I mean, sort of the top down filtering of thoughts from OWS over the years has been from me, right? Because for a couple of years, the site was just me. That's that we think a little bit too much about salary sometimes, right? Instead of the best plays are. So when we think about Daryl Williams and Khalil Herbert, just under 5K, then we have somebody like Joe Mixon at just over 6K, somebody who's going to be on the field basically every play. And... The like okay, what's the negative case? Well, maybe he's not fully healthy. What's the positive case? People are not going to play him because they think maybe he's not fully healthy. And so, even if he does, even if he gets two or three catches, one or two catches, it's just such a great spot for him. He should get twenty plus touches. Uh, Chuba Hubbard had almost thirty touches last week. Only played like sixty-five percent of the snaps. They were designing plays to go to him, and that's another thing that we see in DFS is the new value play just gets so overhyped. Like very clearly, if if Christian McCaffrey had just gotten injured and Saquon Barkley had just gotten injured, Chuba Hubbard would be way more popular than Devontae Booker. Chuba Hubbard at 5,900 would be way more popular than Daryl Williams and Khalil Herbert at roughly 1K less. So what I'm kind of looking at right now is not even thinking about, like not even from a starting point i thinking about how the field is seeing things outside of the Khalil Herbert thing, but not even from that starting point, but even just saying, what's the best way to maximize our chances of like a 250-point score? Well, spending a little bit extra at running back, it's not like there's all these high-priced guys that were like, oh, we got to fit them in this week. And there's plenty of places with our game stacks where we can kind of save salary in different places. So for me, I think it's a really interesting week to consider guys like Dalvin Cook, guys like Joe Mixon, guys like Chuba Hubbard, uh, obviously Kareem Hunt in that mix, DeAndre Swift, But for me, I'm starting to angle toward like, I'll probably pay 59 or more at running back on every roster, which again, automatically gives me a different roster construction than the field, but also just gives me guys who are, Mike talked about this a lot this week, but guys who are underpriced for their role, guys who are underpriced for the expectations we had on them coming into the season, when their role and their situation really hasn't changed much from what we expected coming into the season. So yeah, I I think that these 5,900 and up guys are really interesting to me, especially because you're automatically doing something different from the field and taking sharper plays on top of that. And I think that saving 1,400 at wide receiver or some other place on your roster is easy enough to do that. I'll I'll spend the extra 1,400 or 1,200 or 1,300, whatever it is, to get from one of these popular cheaper value plays up to one of these guys who just makes a lot more sense, especially when we think about who could get you like, if we go look at first place rosters, and we see how many 30 point scores are littered across those rosters. Well, Devontae Booker is a fine play. What are his chances of getting you 30 points compared to Chuba Hubbard or Joe Mixon or Kareem Hunt or DeAndre Swift or any of these other guys who are just a little bit higher priced? Same thing with Khalil Herbert. Same thing with Daryl Williams. So I'll let everybody else chase like those 15, 20 point scores and hope that I can capture some 30, 35 pointers just by spending a tiny bit of extra salary there. So, yeah, that's kind of how I'm seeing the running back position as of saturday afternoon saturday evening Uh, i'll also note that i kind of at this point round out my thoughts based on my saturday afternoon stuff which is you know listening to you guys and then kind of letting my thoughts settle so um that's subject to change but that's how i'm seeing things right now and um hilo i'm curious like 15 second recap is that kind of the same thing you're seeing
1: Yeah, pretty much. And that's kind of how I started off the end around as well, with somewhat of a bold statement that there are a ton. People are going to feel like there's a ton of value this week. Well, in fact, there's a ton of landmines. Um, And that pretty much perfectly captures how I'm seeing the running back position, which is going to be a filter for a lot of lineups this week. So um, I love the the Dalvin Cook call. Um, Austin Eckler is another one at the top. Um, I don't know how much I will be able or if I will be willing to do a double payup. up um, that seems a little bit more MME to me um, as opposed to my style. But I love uh, for the MME crowd here, um, double payup at running back. Obviously I went against putting that in the end around um, just because there are some other places that I think that salary can be better allocated for a single entry three max type player where we want a little bit additional or a little bit heavier floor and i think we can find that in some of these guys like joe mixon chuba hubbard and deandre swift are, are three of my favorites down there um x i see you chomping at the bit you have uh, something to add there as well
0: <laughs> i just wanted to note so like Khalil herbert got 18 touches last week and scored 7.5 DraftKings points because he caught zero passes and he rushed for 75 yards um J- Devonte booker got 20 opportunities, including four targets, and scored two touchdowns. Like, that's about the ceiling outcome you could hope for, right? 20 touches, some several past game targets, multiple touchdowns, and he scored 20 DraftKings points because he rushed for, like, two yards of carry or something ridiculous like that. Like, you know, these plays can hit, right? Like, running backs of goal line rolls can hit. Um, but not bad plays. But again, I think they're thinner... And the field is is giving is is accrediting them with. Um, <clears throat> I also want to note I, I I'm interested in James' take. I don't know if Jim caught this question, but I'm interested in James' thoughts on the Patriots' running back situation if Damian Harris is out. Because uh, I'd be really interested in Ramondre stevenson who looked really explosive in the preseason um but we just haven't really seen him this year after like an early fumble but he basically be the guy james white's out like brandon bolden's a fullback um what do you think jm is Ramondre, is Ramondre, Ramondre stevenson is he a strong target if uh if Damien harris misses and especially at low ownership since we probably wouldn't get that news until after the early game luck
2: yeah i mean i'm as lost on that one as anyone The only running backs they have on the roster are are J.J. Taylor and Brandon Bolden and Damian Harris and Ramondre Stevenson. So if Damian Harris is out, well, Brandon Bolden, they're basically using him in the James White role, which is to me surprising. Ramondre Stevenson showed pass-catching ability in the preseason. He showed pass-catching ability in college. So it's been a little bit surprising to me that they've used Brandon Bolden, who's been there for, I think, eight of the last nine years, almost always as a special teamer, uh, kind of a team leader, a special teamer, and he rarely gets these running back opportunities. So it has surprised me that that's been the direction they've gone. It's a very Patriots-like thing to do. Uh, but I don't think that J.J. Taylor has any more trust from the coaching staff than Ramondre Stevenson has. And Ramondre Stevenson is definitely a superior talent. So yeah, I think that Ramondre Stevenson is super interesting. And I think that we would view him not as a complete, running back and again not to say that I'll say it like this the thing with Khalil Herbert right like let's take David Montgomery he gets one to two to sometimes three catches a game and typically it's where he's just the outlet and he catches a pass and gets tackled right away Khalil Herbert could add two catches for eight yards right like that's kind of what we would see from him and we occasionally see that from Damian Harris but what I don't think we'll see for Ramondre Stevenson this is just a guess but what I don't think we'll see is schemed pass game usage But I think that we could see him get basically the same type of workload as Khalil Herbert, assuming that Damian Harris misses, which would be those 18 to 20 carries and uh, one or two kind of dump off targets. Uh, Piggybacking off of that, I mean, Damian Harris isn't that much more expensive than Ramondre Stevenson. So if he plays, nobody's going to be on him either. I mean, I think we get sub 2% ownership on Damian Harris, sub 1% on Ramondre Stevenson. I'd have to think. Uh, depending on the tournament, obviously. But the I think that either of them makes sense if you want to just say, where can we get 100 yards and two touchdowns from a running back nobody's on? I don't think that either of them necessarily is a separator. I think that the guesswork, adding in the guesswork on Ramondre Stevenson and, and the fact that he kind of has the same general role as Khalil Herbert makes it tougher for him to be a clear separator, especially since they're both in the same position, right? Uh, underdogs who should be chasing points this week. I think that he makes a, a lot of sense. I, I think I would save him more for like large field tournaments where these sub 1% owned guys can make a huge difference, especially if you're saying, okay, I'm going to build around Rams on this roster and I'm going to fit Devonte Adams onto this roster and do stuff that other people are doing. Well, Ramondre Stevenson immediately separates you at that running back position and kind of gives you just one other thing that you have to do differently to sort of uh, lap the field if that one ends up hitting. But yeah, I think that's how I'm seeing it. I keep, I've kept messing around with him for my builds, but just haven't been able to get comfortable with him for the 5,000 entry and below tournaments that, that I'll be focused on this week.
0: Yeah, that feels right. I, I, don't, think I, I don't think I don't tried to put Ramondre in like a, a smaller tournament. Um, I'm thinking like, if you're doing enemy i'm trying to think of like i always try to think of like the late swap leverage options because they can just come in at such low ownership um that even though they might not be smash plays um you know if you can get them at sub one percent because everyone's already locked uh and doesn't have the flexibility and you can prepare yourself to have some flexibility uh, and this, I'm kind of interested in it this week because there's two different potential flexibility options, right? We've got, uh, potentially Ramondi Stevenson and potentially Jamonte Williams. And so it kind of feels to me like the odds are good that at least one of those shakes out and becomes real. Um, I'm hopeful. I mean, depending on the overnight news, right? We might get news overnight that both Melvin Gordon and Harris are expected to play. Um, but if we don't get that, then I think it makes sense to keep some flexibility, uh, just for those incredibly low owned upside options. Again, if you're doing large tournaments. Um, As a
2: random side note, did did Adam Schefter take this year off? We've had like no explosive overnight. News this season, none at all. Like nothing, nothing that gives us an edge of still being up at ten or eleven p.m. and being like, "Oh, cool! I get a head start on on this information." I feel like that's standard in the past, and this year there there really hasn't been any stuff breaking late Saturday night. Just kind of interesting.
0: He got kind of in trouble, didn't he? It's like there wasn't wasn't in like that whole email thing. There was something about like Adam Schefter turns out it was like getting information in ways that were. You know, considered I don't know, somewhat ethically dubious for a journalist. I'm not. I, I, I saw something about that, and I don't. Want, I don't want to throw any shade on Adam Schefter by any means, because I don't know. To be clear, right? Like <laughs> I don't know Andrew this.
2: Hoover stuff going yeah, on?
0: right. Like I don't know this. This is something I saw on Twitter. It could be total bullshit. To be clear, right? Like um, I just saw something about Adam Schefter and like some you know some concerns of uh, getting information in weird and and dubious ways. But I was wondering if you yeah. interview might know more about this. <laughs> There was something
1: I saw. Yeah, there was something I saw along the same lines, but that was just like this week that happened. So like, chapter has been—I feel like—been uh, not providing the same level of bombs, like Jam was saying, for the whole year. So I don't know what's going on with that, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> that's all I got. I like a J. Jagger Hoover
3: theory. We'll go yeah, that. that was good.
1: <laughs> There's uh oh, I'm gonna hold on. Sorry, preparatory cough pause. Um. There's one other backfield situation that is highly intriguing to me, and I think that a lot of the field is not going to be attacking, and that's with the Washington football team. And the mm-hmm. reason I say that is we, we have a pretty sizable uh, sample size of how this backfield is going to be utilized, and now we have them you know, hosting the Chiefs, and we can almost assume that they're you know, going to be relatively conservative, not from a play calling standpoint or like trying to slow the game down, but they're going to be relatively conservative with their, uh, with, you know, backup quarterback uh, with Kansas city chiefs coming to town. So I would think that Antonio Gibson is going to start the first couple of drives with a pretty sizable workload. Now that said, the actual game flow is going to dictate how this backfield is going to be utilized. But when we break down the, likeliest outcomes for this game we have two game scenarios where antonio gibson sees 20 22 maybe 25 um carries with a handful of targets mixed in and then there is a very clear on the other side of that if kansas city comes in and puts up points early there's a very clear scenario or path for um oh god no i'm losing his name Jay, yeah, McKissick. JD McKissick, to see 8, 10, 12 even targets if it's a highly negative game flow. So when you have a situation like this where it depends on the actual outcome of the game, but we know with a high level of certainty how it would play out in various game flows, we're presented with an interesting scenario where we can look to capture all of those different scenarios by playing one or the other, on various lineups. And I don't think the field is really going to be doing that this week. So, X, how are you Are you as intrigued as I am in the Washington backfield? How are you handling that situation?
0: Yeah, so Washington just looks like, a, as a team, is really thin, right? Like, they just don't have a lot of weaponry right now. They've got Gibson, they've got McKissick, uh, Logan, so they're tied into Ricky Seals-Jones. Um, they've got Terry McLaurin, who's banged up. Uh, last I saw, he's expected to play, but then the wide receivers past Terry McLaurin are like Adam Humphreys and, and De'Ami Brown if he plays and like Cam Sims. So like you've got a team that has a, a dearth of skill position players, and so they're going to have a narrow distribution of volume by necessity. Um the question I have around so first off, I love Gibson because if the game stays close, they're going to, you know, they're going to ride, they're going to ride Gibson as hard as they can. Right. So I love Gibson um, in, in rosters that are predicated around the game, staying close uh, or shooting out or shooting out, I guess, not shooting out with the, what with Washington chasing. Right. Um, McKissick. I'm a little. More wary of, um, because we haven't seen this year. Like when he was getting those like ten plus target games, was was with Alex Smith uh, at quarterback, who we know loves to check down, loves passing to his running backs. Um, and this year we haven't seen that. So McKissick's uh, target count in a game is high as six. He's had four, five, two, six, and one, um, and four and two in two significant losses where they where they lost by more than a touchdown. So. Like I'm okay with it. Uh, I think that ten targets might be thinking about him in the in the Alex Smith days. But you could certainly make a case that, like, especially if McLaurin is out, um, that they're that they're just so thin and so starved for for pass catchers that they would involve him more often. Um, so I'd say I'm more interested if McLaurin is out, but I think I'm going to be the ownership of the game overall, like looks fairly favorable to me considering it's the highest total game of the week. Like there's it's owned, right? But it's not owned at the level I expected it to be. So I'm going to be building in my MME runs, probably at least like 50 stacks out of 150 around that game. And so I'm probably going, like, I'll mix in the Washington guys across all those, right? Like, I'll have a lot of McLaurin, I'll have a lot of McKissick, or sorry, a lot of Gibson. Um, but I'll definitely have some McKissick, I'll have some Marquis jones I'll have, I might even have some, like, who's the other guy, DeAndre Carter, right? Like, uh, I'll definitely have some of the other ancillary plays, because we know we can't predict, like, where touchdowns come from, Um and you could well be right, you know, like you could well be right that we see a target spike for McKissick in this game, because in the games they've lost so far, there was the Buffalo game where they were just kind of hopeless the whole way through. Um, but other than that, like their other losses, the Chargers uh, against the Chargers McKissick didn't really play um, against New Orleans. You know, he didn't play a lot. He got four targets um but against like in some other games like in their highest scoring games where they were successful like they scored 34 points against Atlanta and 30 against the giants and that's where mckissick had his big games with five and six targets with 16.9 and 20.3 draft kings draft kings points so like despite that he hasn't gotten 10 targets this year he's shown us the ceiling is still there right 20.3 points at 4.8 k um is a is an awfully solid performance and one you'd be pretty happy with. it puts you on pace for over 200.
1: Yeah, my thinking with McKissick is this. After week one, the last four weeks, he's had a minimum of 40% snap rate, and he's been in a tight range 40% to 46% snap rate. When he was getting these large spike target weeks last season, it was basically with Logan Thomas, F1, and then Cam Sims, because they had injuries last season as well. And when you look at how that kind of compares to this season, yes, like... Alex Smith is no longer the quarterback, but we we're now in like cam Sims is even out this week. So there it's F one, it's a backup tight end and it's like Antonio Gibson. And that's really like the bulk of their skill position players. So my thinking is maybe we see the perfect scenario for those kind of all those outside influence and factors to come together to where that we do see a spike week. I, I, that's kind of how I'm seeing that situation. Interesting interested now to hear how JM is seeing that situation.
2: Yeah. I've had the same thought as Zandemir and thinking about McKissick's and I'll I'll, I'll run through all of this because I know that I've talked up McKissick McKissick this week as well. So uh, thinking about what are our reactions to a player? If the production had been different, if the workload had been the same, the production had been different i talked this week about heineke uh mclaurin mckissick and heineke combining for 75 plus points in two of their four games together but one of those mckissick's touchdown was that play where heineke rolled out to the left at the end of the game and then threw across the field to mckissick and then mckissick you know made several guys miss and got the angle to the end zone and that was probably an 11 point play i think it was probably about a 40 yard touchdown catch so take away 11 points right and he's sitting there with like one good game on his ledger and probably about six targets per five to six targets as his projection that's kind of how i'm seeing him this week is as like a a 12 touch back, put it all together, 10, 11, 12, touch back, where he gets a few carries, he gets about six targets. Um, I think he can spike to seven or eight. I would be surprised if we saw him get all the way up to 10, but that still makes him interesting to me in game stacks. And so building around, what I want to be able to do is build around this game in such a way that I, something that Hilo's talked about this week as well, is build around this game in such a way that basically my roster is totally set apart from the field, even though I'm building around the highest total game on the slate. So in other words, if we're saying, well, this is pretty clearly the top game, then let's go ahead and and build around it in a unique way. So I am basically wanting to make sure that mentally I don't overrate McKissick's certainty. I still see him as a pretty rocky play from a floor perspective. But I think that from a ceiling perspective of how do we tie in an extra play with Heineke plus McLaurin, or even leave McLaurin off and have McKissick plus rookie Seals-Jones, or DeAndre Carter played 58 out of 82 snaps last week. If Deami Brown doesn't come back this week, I think that DeAndre Carter is very interesting. He saw eight targets last week, had five catches. He has some explosiveness to his game. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking for ways to get exposure to this offense and one of the things that i've made a mistake with in the past is and i kind of cleaned this up probably last year or the year before is overrating target certainty and neglecting to account for the potential for a team to kind of you know still give three targets to this guy four targets to this guy five targets to this guy and that kind of adds up right but i think that the potential for i think it would be very surprising if mclaurin plus Ricky Seals-Jones didn't combine for at least 18 targets. And it also wouldn't be surprising if they got up to 22, 23, 24 targets, right? Like we could see eight or nine for Ricky Seals-Jones. We could see 13 for McLaurin. Uh, And then, you know, again, McKissick, I'm thinking more in the range of like five to seven, hopefully eight. But There's upside on those catches. The PPR value at a guy at 4,800 helps quite a bit um, and much more big play potential than a guy like Devontae Booker. So if we say Kissick gets like four carries and five or six catches and Booker gets 15 carries and... Five catches. I think that McKissick still has a good shot at outscoring Booker in that setup just because the game environment and the matchup works more in McKissick's favor. So McKissick isn't a guy that I'm like excited about, but he's a guy I'm very interested in. And then as for Gibson, I try to be cognizant of where the field's view of a player comes from. And so I remember that Thanksgiving game last year when Gibson had like his first major blow up and he was low owned. And that kind of helped vault me to that game changer first place finish last year on on Thanksgiving day. And he was lower owned because people weren't looking at him as a guy who should be highly owned, even on a two game slate. Then there was all this hype in the offseason about his role changing and then his role hasn't really changed. So I've been hesitant to play Gibson outside of the one time where it's like, okay, I captured the big game. Um, And it's felt like the field as a whole has been kind of chasing that game. But I also think that any week when Gibson's low owned and we can project Washington trying to filter the offense through him, there's a ton of upside there. It's just not where I'm looking this week, but yeah, I, I, I genuinely think any piece on the Washington offense is worth considering and worth bringing into game stacks. That's just kind of how I'm looking at the way that I'll be pulling my game stacks together.
0: Can I just note here that McKissick's other big game, game in a nightmare play for me when the chi- the Giants lined up like three linemen and McKissick just sort of walked into the end zone from like cards out and like no one touched him because there weren't actually any linemen like anywhere in the way. And I was sitting there in first place in a showdown without McKissick going, all I need is for McKissick not to score a touchdown here. And the, the, the Giants are just like, oh, please walk over here and score a touchdown. We won't bother you. So I hate that guy, but yeah. But also, it's fair to point out, right? Like, anytime someone has a really explosive game, there's something that broke their way, right? There's some broken play. There's something called a hail mary, you know, contested catch, whatever. Like, you know, there's something that broke their way to help them get get to that big game. Where I think it's where I think this conversation is relevant with McKissick is he's had a couple of good games. but he's in, in in the two games where like the the random thing has broken his way, he got the 30-yard touchdown catch uh that Jam talked about. He got the walk-in touchdown where the Giants didn't bother trying to block. He still only had pretty good games there. Like he got kind of like it's sort of like everything broke right for him. He got a lucky touchdown to play that probably shouldn't have been a touchdown. Um, and he still only got to like 17 to 20 points. Um like I kind of generally want to look for guys who when they get that that last weird thing that breaks their way, they're going to get to 25 or 30 points. That said, um, all I'm all I'm saying this for is I wouldn't play McKissick personally outside of stacks of that game. Um, if you're building stacks of that game, it makes sense to consider lots of different ways to attack it, uh, including these ancillary plays. Because most people are going to be building stacks of that game inc- that are around... Uh, tra- Travis Kelsey, Terry Kill, Daryl Williams, uh, Ricky Seals-Jones, and Terry McLaurin, and a little bit of Gibson, and that's kind of it. So, like, how many times have we have seen over the years uh, the best game environment produces the winning tournament score, but it involves someone, it involves, like, one or two players who no one's on because everyone's playing the primary plays from that game. And no one's looking at the ancillary plays, so I'm happy to play them in game stacks because I want to pick up those weird ancillary play like variations. I want to make sure I'm exposed and like available to to um to benefit from that based on the amount of exposure I'm going to have to that game. Um, but I personally wouldn't play them
3: outside of game stacks of that game. I love I'm,
2: it. I'm on board with that.
1: Love it. All right, boys. So the next basically roster funnel that we have this week is looking like the tight end position. So. A lot of heavy ownership is going to be funneling through the running back position and the tight end position. And this week, we've kind of gone back and forth between pay up tight ends and then value tight ends. Well, this week we're back to pay up tight ends, and it looks like Travis Kelsey, Mark Andrews, and Darren Waller are all going to garner some pretty hefty ownership. So X, I'm going to go to you first on this one with the lower likelihood of one of the value tight ends outscoring some of these guys, or all three of these guys, we should say. Um, How are you handling the tight end position? Are you basically singling out any of these three guys, or basically handling it like a um, included in a game stack like you normally do? So let me first note,
0: um, I'm not seeing Waller projected for much ownership. Uh, we have him. I don't know what OWS has. My aggregate, my aggregate model has him at like 4%. Um, and that's including projections from like several different sources. So I actually have him pretty low. Uh, the three that I, the three big ones that I see are Travis Kelsey, Mark Andrews, and, and Rookie Seals Jones. And so like, if we kind of pick three for those. So Travis Kelsey is the best player in football. Great. Uh, he's in a positive matchup. High team title. Great. He always is um he's also kind of like he's at a discount his price is normally not 7k this is about the cheapest we really ever see him get down to um i'm trying to think i'm gonna go check him out i think it's the cheapest he's been all year yes he's normally he's been over 8k every week this year except last week um so he's normally like a more like 7.5 to 8 point something player so like discount kelsey is going to attract people um I, i i have a hard time ever just not playing travis kelsey when he's like on the slate because I feel like his, you know, when you get a ceiling game from Travis Kelsey, it just, it blows every other tight end out of the water. Um, So I'm happy to play him in any format. Um, Mark Andrews is a play. He's one of those where I feel like what would his ownership be if he wasn't just coming off of a massive blow up game? Because Mark Andrews has, he's, he's kind of around the price he's been all, all year. He hasn't really hit for a big game all year. We haven't seen him be owned all year, right? Like he's not been super highly owned um, for the most part this year, generally like maxing out around like 10, 12% at most. Then he comes, then he's coming off this 44 point game, 147 yards and two touchdowns. Um, But he, now he's on a short week and he's playing the chargers defense, which is a really good defense um, and and really good against tight ends with Derwin James. So, you know, can he hit? Of course he's incredibly talented. Right. Um, But it feels like this. This feels chasey to me. Like seeing him at this level of ownership, it feels like the field is chasing his big performance in primetime. If that forty-four point seven game was week one, and his five point week one game was last week, I think we'd see him much much lower. And so, I'm not super interested in Andrews outside of game stacks. Um, Ricky Seals Jones, I didn't love last week because I just didn't trust the role. Um, but last and he saw nine targets last week and he didn't really do that well. Like if you played him at 2500, he got you nine points and that was you know fine. He didn't sink your roster. he didn't win it for you either. Um, but nine targets at 3K. like where else are you gonna find nine targets at 3k? And so I think he's a fantastic play. Um, I am going to, uh, I think, uh, just ruin my brand for all time in this discord and say that this is one of the rare times where I could actually argue playing two tight ends together. Yeah. Um, and the reasoning here, the reasoning is Travis Kelsey uh has a floor and ceiling that is higher than basically any other 7K wide receiver. Um, right? Like his floor and ceiling are competitive with the top end wide receivers. Um he's he's I think he has a higher floor floor and ceiling than guys like C Lamb, Keenan Allen, Jamar Chase, Trey McLaurin. Like he's up there with them. He he can compete with them. Uh and then Ricky Seals Jones is has has a higher floor ceiling than any other 3k play on the slate right the other 3k plays in the slate are like guys who don't see the field for the most part actually i think DeAndre carter's 3k um but like there's just you know in 3k price range like there's just not a lot right and so and they're in the same game environment it allows you to stack that game in a way that most of the field won't do right they're both highly owned but will but probably won't be very highly owned together so i'm actually really interested there I like Darren Waller because I uh, similarly to Kelsey, like I'm always happy to play one of the premium tight ends, like one of the guys who has like legit 25 plus uh, point ceiling Um, when I can get them at low ownership. And that's what Waller looks like. Outside of that, there's really no like plays I love as standalone plays um, and I'll just mix in with game stacks as I usually do. Uh, I do want to call like Tyler Higby kind of keeps drawing my attention. Like we haven't seen the blow up game from him this year yet, but we've seen a couple solid performances, but he's on the field almost every snap and he's, and he's in a pretty condensed offense in a positive matchup on the Rams. And they have the second highest team total of the week. So like, and he's projected for almost no ownership because people have gotten burned by him like over and over this year, but like play the guys who are on the field, you know, like when you get a tight end, who's on the field almost every snap, like that's rare. And I will happily keep investing in that. And he'll have a blow up game at some point. We know he's talented. We saw him have huge blow up games. Was it last season or the year before? I think it was last season when Gerald Everett was out. And uh Higby just had some massive blow up games. So like we know that we know the talent's there, we know the matchups there, the opportunities there, he's on the field a ton. Um, he decides to get the targets and the touchdowns flowing his way, and at some point that will happen. He's my only other kind of like standalone tight end play that I'm interested in. Otherwise, it's it's game stacks
2: for me.
1: Yeah. And I want to quickly talk about the pricing psychology that's going on at the tight end position and why I think we're going to see pretty uh, honed in ownership at the position. Because we have Mark Andrews at 52. We have Travis Kelce at 7K. We have obviously Ricky Seals Jones at 3K. And then Darren Waller at 6.6. So these guys are either priced down or have not been priced up uh, a lot to match recent production a la Ricky Seals Jones. So... When we when that is the case, it's almost as if people are like, "Oh my God!" Like DraftKings messed up with Titan pricing this week. Like I can play whoever I want, and then we see these like high concentrations of ownership. So when, in my mind, when I see that happen, I immediately want to poke holes in it and analyze it and be like, "Is is there another reason for this kind of congregation of ownership?" The one that sticks out to me that Zandomir as well that does not fit in kind of this overall tight end puzzle is mark andrews and it feels highly highly chasey as as he said and there's some other guys that are priced just below kind of that top tier um you mentioned tyler higby at 4.4 the other is tj hawkinson at 5k and obviously he also brings the questionable tag I'd expect him to play, and he went out last week under the same injury and same designation and saw basically played 81% of the offensive snaps and saw a normal-for-him workload. So that's also an interesting um, guy who is I expect to have almost no ownership being priced just below that kind of upper echelon. And the final guy I will mention is Jared Cook. There has been all kinds of Donald Parham is going to see more targets, yada, yada, yada. The, basically, in my mind, that is absolutely optimal to look to Jared Cook at only 3.2, particularly if Mike Williams is out. And Jared Cook has run like four times as many routes as Donald Parham, and he just has not seen basically the same Per route target rate that Donald Parham has seen. So those are two guys that stand out to me, um, trying to analyze the position group as a whole and not get sucked into the pricing psychology side of it. Uh, Jam, what are you seeing at the tight end
2: Yeah, basically everything you guys are saying. Uh, regarding Waller, we have him at 14%. That's bound to come down. Uh, another site that I trust a lot has him at 8%. Um, I would think that somewhere higher uh, X than your 4% and lower than the 14% is what we'll see. But I would guess like seven, 8%. That is just a guess. And obviously I'm not um, I'm not the sharpest when it comes to predicting ownership projection, because I, I research everything in a bubble, but from the standpoint of like uh, DFS psychology, that's where I would roughly expect him to end up Mark Andrews. And I talked about this earlier in the week. I, again, researching in a bubble and some weeks more so than others, but this week was very bubbly for me. And the Rams or the Chargers Baltimore game was one that was not on my list. And then late Thursday night, I was just trying to think, what's the the third game? Not the third, right? Like, okay, we've got, The the Lions game could have some points and people aren't really expecting it, or the Vikings and Panthers game could have some points and people aren't really expecting it. And I think that those are better games. Well, they're definitely better games than the Chargers and Ravens. But I was trying to think, well, what game could go for 70 plus points? What game could be a had to have it? game. Well, some of these other games are less likely to hit that type of output. And so it was at that point, late Thursday night that I was like, oh, this Chargers Ravens game is kind of sneaky. I kind of like this game. I talked about it in the angles pod, finished the angles pod, checked out ownership projections. I was like, oh my God, everyone's on this game, right? So for me, that game outside of Marquise Brown, uh, shout out to Hilo, we're on the same page there, outside of Marquise Brown, that's not really a game that I'm super interested in. Obviously things change on the charger side of Mike Williams is out, but the, I'm not chasing Mark Andrews. I almost never play Mark Andrews anyway, because his floor is so much lower and his frequency of huge games is so much lower than the field thinks. So the field always remembers his 30 point games, his 40 point games, and they typically come in prime time. And then they forget that there's all these 7.8 point, 11 point games, for Mark Andrews. I know he's been running more routes this year and all that, but I just think that the this is a much rockier play than people are going to give it credit for. So thinking about see being cheaper than normal, Waller being priced right next to him, and Mark Andrews really, like for me. For me, salary is not a huge concern on this slate because of the things I'm looking at, the way I'm building, things have been kind of easy for me to just put together what I want to put together. So the extra 1800 that I'm saving from Kelsey down to Mark Andrews doesn't matter that much to me. There's There's what I like about Kelsey, right? And what we all like about Kelsey is that we've really only seen his floor games so far. And outside of like the dud, his floor games are going to be like 17 to 20 points. And you just can't get that from other tight ends. Uh, And so basically, I want Kelsey if I'm paying up, or I want to be doing something different. So for me, Kelsey, Ricky Seals Jones are extremely sharp plays. If I want to get off of the cheaper chalk on Ricky Seals Jones, Jared Cook is the way that I would be looking to do it. And if I want to do something really different from what the field is doing, uh, same as X was saying, Maybe Hawkinson are the guys that I'm, or uh, Hilo, you said Hawkinson, but those are the guys that I'm thinking about. Uh, Guys who can have a, not a Kelsey- high-end game, right? Like Kelsey's high-end is like 36 to 40 points. But more often than not, everybody's going to be hyped up about Kelsey. He'll come out and put up 20 to 25 points. And it kind of almost feels like a disappointment because you spent 7K on him. It's like for the tight end position, that's phenomenal. So I want to think if I'm getting above the 3K guys, who can also score 15 to 20, by the way. And if I'm getting above those guys, I want to think who can put up one of these 25-point games and kind of match Kelsey. And for me this week, it's now Hawkinson obviously comes with a lot of risk. But when you talk about if he's going to be you know between 3% and 5% owned that risk is worth it it's going to be profitable over time same thing with higby if he's going to be 2 to 3% owned which is basically what i'm seeing everywhere this week then he's going to be he's going to make you money over time and so those are the other guys i'm going to which allows us to bet on game environments guys who are on the field a lot guys who are involved guys who have big play and touchdown so, yeah, that's how I'm seeing the tight end position. Not a place where I'm necessarily overweighting strategy because again, Kelsey and Ricky Seals Jones are both very sharp plays. They're both going to be owned. But if i'm if I'm moving towards some strategy stuff, it's going to be Jared Cook. It's going to be Higby and potentially TJ. Hawkinson this week.
1: And I love the discussion about the Chargers and the Ravens game. And that's going to lead us right into the wide receiver position, which is what we're going to talk about next. And I want to start with that game because although that game is expected to carry a significant ownership, it is highly, highly concentrated on the quarterbacks, on Mark Andrews, and then on Austin Eckler. And that's assuming that Mike Williams is out. If he plays, he's going to be the other one on the Chargers that carries significant ownership. And the reason for that, Outside of w- anything that I can, I guess, glean from around the industry is almost entirely rooted in recent Subias. Obviously, both of these teams are coming off massive comeback wins, um, you know, record-setting wins for the Ravens. And we have these couple of guys who are kind of getting forgot about in the shuffle. Um, The one on the Ravens being Marquise Brown, uh, which is interesting to think about him getting lost in the shuffle as he currently stands as the wide receiver six on the season. Um, And the guy on the Chargers is Keenan Allen. And I basically dissected and went through all the metrics with Keenan Allen. Like, what is going on? Why isn't he hitting? So basically, he has 30.1% of the team's available air yards on the season. He has a 26.2% team target market share. And a very Keenan Allen uh, 8.7 average depth of target. So there's not a lot in these numbers that is any different from last season. Uh, and comparatively, it's just that those big hits, splash plays, touchdowns have not come. He does carry a somewhat alarming 7.5% drop rate, and that is very un Keenan Allen like um, and a very low for his low ADOT um, catch rate of 64.2%. But we look at the overall composition and how, you know, is Keenan Allen a different player in this system? He really is not. It's just that he and Herbert have not connected on the same level. So those two plays in particular, I think are going highly overlooked uh, from a popular game environment and are an interesting way for me at least to not have to fade a game that is expected to garner ownership completely. If I still want to dabble and take pieces. Uh, So X, what are you, I'm going to basically just throw it over to you to talk about these two plays in particular, and then we'll talk about the wide receiver position overall.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I'll start with Marquise Brown. Um, So let's compare Marquis Brown and Mark Andrews for a second, if we can. So, Mark, uh, Marquis Brown is coming in at half the ownership of Mark Andrews, right? About 9%, 10% versus about 20% ish for Mark Andrews or in that neighborhood. Uh, Mark Andrews has one good game this season, one okay game at 18.9 DraftKings points, and three duds at 11.7 or fewer DraftKings points, which at his price is, you know, is a dud, even at the tight end. Uh, Marquise Brown has one bad game where he like dropped everything. Um and then every single other game is 19.1 DraftKings points or higher. Now 19.1 DraftKings points at 5900 is only okay, but it's, you know, that that's the that's the like it doesn't crater your roster but it doesn't win you anything either. Um but 19.1 or higher, two of 26.3 or higher. The 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 36.5 blow up was a was an overtime. Um although mark Andrews I think got at least least something in overtime i think he got most of his catches in regulation i think it was brown who scored the overtime touchdown in that one um so brown has significantly outperformed um andrews to this to to date in the season uh where andrews has really just had this one big blow-up game and yet the field is congregating on andrews um which is weird to me and interesting and i think it's because of it's it's positional right like they both had giant recent games but I think it's positional. Where Andrews is, is you know, a tight end, which is a much rockier position. Um, Marquise Brown's wide receiver. They have the same number of targets on the year at 38. So like the volume is equivalent for each of them. Like so, everything kind of lines up for Brown to be the stronger overall play, and yet he's coming in at half the ownership. So like that kind of seems like a pretty clear. I should prefer. I should overweight Marquise Brown and underweight Mark Andrews if I'm thinking about it from like a you know portfolio allocation standpoint. So I'm Do on board. Do you want to
2: jump in real real quickly here? I, mean, it's I also I also think that the uh, it's interesting just to examine real quickly the DFS psychology. It's been drilled into people over time that it's sharp to play Mark Andrews and it's kind of been drilled into people over time that they feel like a fish if they click on Marquise Brown. So if we can identify that Marquise Brown has continued to develop as a player Lamar Jackson has continued to develop as a passer then we can take advantage of the fact that we can start shifting the way that we're viewing this play as so, oh it's a sharper play than the field thinks and the field thinks oh I don't want somebody to look at my roster and laugh at it because it has Marquise Brown on it and like that's a fish play on chasing points i think it's a really interesting um like little wrinkle in the DFS psychology that people don't feel like they're chasing points with Mark Andrews because he he's been established as a sharp play over time. People feel like they're chasing points with Marquise Brown with Mark Andrews. They're like, Oh God, he's going to do this again. And I'm going to miss out on it. And with Marquise Brown, they're like, well, there's no way he can do it again. I'll feel like an idiot. If I play him. And he bombs.
0: <laughs> I like that. I want to note here too. I would not play uh, either of them Andrews or Brown without a charger. Because we know the Ravens are happy to just run the ball and sit on a lead, um, and they get—they don't—they only tend to get aggressive passing uh, when they're forced to. Um, this is a team. This isn't a team that comes out of the gate super aggressive and keeps it up all game, regardless of what the opponent's doing. And this isn't even a team that comes out aggressive out of the gates until they're up by three scores and then takes their foot off the gas. Like they will just run the ball all day long until unless the other team forces them to and if you look at like i think marquise brown had one catch at halftime in the colts game and then ended up with nine catches on 10 targets um because the colts were up like 22 to 3 at halftime or something like that and the ravens just came out firing in the second half so like they're they're somewhat game script sensitive plays in terms of their volume and if you look at marquise brown like he has two 10 target games in the season one was against kansas city uh in a shootout and then one was against indianapolis when they were playing from behind uh at halftime and so i think the volume is somewhat script sensitive there but i do like marquise brown a lot i'm looking at the ownership on the chargers and i think that the ownership projections i'm looking at are sort of assuming mike williams out like they haven't projected in for points but he's projecting at like two percent ownership and keenan allen at like 15 percent. so I'm, I'm thinking that the ownership, the ownership is predicated on on williams being out um because that seems really high for keenan allen if williams is in But if Williams is out, I am happy to play Keenan Allen at 15% ownership. If Williams is in, I'm still happy to play Keenan Allen because I'm pretty sure he won't be at 15% ownership. I'm pretty sure that's high. Um, So I think, like, Williams has outperformed Allen on the season, right? Like, but to Hilo's point, uh, their usage has been closer than I think people realize. Like, uh, Williams is clearly in the valuable X role, and that's amazing. And like that, that, he's had a real role change this year. But he's got 51 targets on the year. Keenan Allen actually has 53, um, but Keenan Allen has one touchdown, whereas Mike Williams has like 18 touchdowns or something. I don't even. It's like it's like five a game. It seems like he scores. Um, but their targets are similar. You know, each of them has one has two games over 100 yards. Um, but it's really just it's the touchdowns have been just flowing towards Williams. So you know, I think that there's. When I see those kind of situations, like the usage is is very similar. You know, Keenan Allen does have a lower A dot, right? Like Williams deserves to be viewed as the I think higher projected player at this point, given the role change. But Allen's not that far behind him, and he's seventeen hundred less in salary. And he's uh, he's going to be. You know, I expect that if Williams plays, Allen's going to be lower owned. If Williams doesn't play, I think Allen's ownership will still be eminently fair for the upside that he brings without Mike Williams. Um, What I also wonder is if anyone has a take on who plays, like, does anyone play that same X receiver role? Does anyone, if Williams is out, does anyone step into his route tree? Like, is it Palmer?
2: I have kept playing around with Palmer. I've checked every beat writer I know to check. I've Googled Palmer to try to see, like, could this guy step in for six or seven targets? I've found nothing. Hilo, do you have any thoughts on Palmer?
1: Does not profile as a prototypical X receiver. Um, So I'm kind of at a fishing point. I think it's fishing either way at this point.
2: I think that's fair. Uh, X, do you have anything else on that? Or you want me to to run through my Keenan and and Marquis thoughts Uh, real quick?
0: Nothing else on this, guys.
2: So for me, X, you might have finally convinced me on Keenan if Mike Williams plays because of the touched potential for touchdown regression. Um, I, you guys know I've never played Keenan Allen because his big games always come in 14 to 19 target games. You can go through his game logs for like the last five years and he might have one big game that's not like a 14 to 19 target game. So I have a hard time seeing that with mike williams so you you know saying like oh his role hasn't changed and my thought is exactly that's why i'm still not playing him but if mike williams is out then i become very interested in playing him. in other words i think that if if mike williams plays maybe keenan allen gets a touchdown and he ends up with like 24 points but optimally i'm targeting a guy who can get me 30 with upside for 40 like when i look at guys like mick lauren guys like jamar chase guys like justin jefferson uh, there's only two wide receivers who can go for 45 to 50 outside of just completely random things happening there's only two guys who can go for 45 to 50 and that's Terry kill and Devontae adams so if i'm not taking those guys i want to be saying okay those guys maybe get you know well they can both get 12 points, 15 points, but you know maybe those guys get 15, 20, 25 whatever. So who are the wide receivers who can get up to 35? And I I have a hard time seeing Keenan Allen get up to 35. Mike Williams is on the field. If Mike Williams is not on the field, and that's where we end up with a situation where Keenan Allen could have one of his 14 to 19 target games. And I think that he becomes obviously extremely interesting in that scenario. So that's kind of how I'm looking at that. And then Marquise Brown, I've kind of run through my thoughts on him. So I, I won't uh, linger here. But yeah, I think that the the fact that he's scored five touchdowns, right? Like I was talked about it now. Zandemir's talked about it. I've talked about it. Like Marquise Brown is wide receiver five on on the season. He's the wide receiver four on this slate and he's priced at 5,900. That's absurd. Uh, He's also being buoyed by his five touchdowns on the season. So his output would look different. It's kind of like the McKissick thing. We have to not just look at what he's done in the DraftKings box score, but also what led to that and how sustainable that is with that said, I think that Marquise Brown at 5,900 is is an incredibly sharp play this week. And especially talking about the ownership, right. And the fact that if he's scoring, he's taking away points from Mark Andrews and in a way, even taking away points from Lamar Jackson, because Lamar Jackson at 7,400 isn't winning people a tournament if he's getting his points to the air. So if he gets, if you roster Marquise Brown and you get a two touchdown game, that actually in a way hurts lamar jackson because those are touchdowns lamar jackson's not getting on the ground and it could be a game where the ravens score three touchdowns total and you know lamar jackson's not getting one on the ground and, and two are going to marquise brown through the air so yeah I, I like marquise brown as a as a strategy play in this spot i like keenan allen mostly if mike williams is out
1: yeah can i note really quick too know,
2: X, anything you- else to add there?
0: Yeah you just you mentioned about like Marquise Brown the touchdowns you're obviously right you know like getting scoring that many touchdowns uh, is there's some amount of luck there but if you go back like into last year you know I think he's what is it uh there's some stat and actually someone copied and pasted it in our channel it's like let's see I'm going to go dig it up um, 80 plus yards or a touchdown in 12 of the last 13 games. He's also being used in the red zone more. And so it's not just like fluky touchdowns. Like he's actually tied for the team lead in red zone targets with Mark Andrews. So we're actually seeing a lot of like, it's we're not just seeing him as like a deep threat, you know, where he's like, he's really kind of being used as like an alpha wide receiver one at this point. So, you yeah, know,
2: and I, I, I like to look for stuff like that, right? Like who are the young guys who might be getting significantly better um, and so like Terry McLaurin working out with Calvin Ridley, this off season, stuff like that stands out because this is a guy who is learning to be a technician. In addition to just being a fast guy, uh, Marquise Brown, I don't know if he still does this, but having worked out with Antonio Brown in the past, um, he's clearly a guy who is trying to improve as a wide receiver and become an all around wide out. And we might see that this this Marquise Brown again is a seven K wide receiver kind of moving forward for the next several years of his career. That wouldn't surprise me. Well, maybe, you know, in the, in this often 6,700 to 7,200, right. Kind of move back and forth. But, um, but yeah, I, I do think that he's fundamentally underpriced. I don't think that that he's just guaranteed to go for twenty plus points every week like a guy like you know Devonte Adams is or the other guys he's kind of scored similar to. But I think that he's a, a, I definitely think he's underpriced. And I think that he's going to be underowned compared to his range of expectations.
0: Hey, See, does, does he fall into the Eagle Scout narrative? You know what his scout rank was.
2: <laughs> oh, I'm I'm impressed that you remembered that one. That was the the David Montgomery one. <laughs>
0: I couldn't tell from you for the life of me what the player
2: was. Yeah, that was the theory that guys who get better in the offseason are are guys to pay attention to. And like David Montgomery was an Eagle Scout like that. That stood out to me when he was coming into his rookie year is he, like this is a guy who's going to work hard. Uh, unfortunately, he looked so bad <laughs> his rookie year and the first half of last year that I, I completely wrote him off. And he has definitely continued to get better. <laughs>
0: See, the Eagles' scout narrative is true. It is, might just might Eagle just take scout a while to play out.
2: Is super sharp, super sharp.
0: <laughs> it takes
1: time to get to okay. Eagle Scouts. We
0: right? need it some. Re- to is, to is Lex develop. in here? Lex, can you? Can we put you on a research project?
3: We need. We need a list of all the Eagle Scouts in the NFL. <laughs> oh yeah, you got it. <laughs> we need to talk about any other wide receivers. I mean, yeah, so okay. right.
1: Obviously, um, <laughs> there's, there's two guys uh, playing in the same game named Tyreek Hill and Terry McLaurin. Play those guys. Um, Jamar Chase, uh, with the propensity for Detroit to give up deep passing, is highly intriguing. Uh, Jam hit on that <laughs> earlier in the week as well. Um, with the Rams and the Giants game, I want to anchor on this one real quick because this is another one that's Highly intriguing to me from the ownership only coming from one side of this game. And to me, this is clearly the tier 1A or the second tier of game environments or possible game environments. Um, and what I want to talk about is, and I wrote this up in the end around, which I think came out this morning if you haven't read it. The team stack of Daniel Jones, Kadarius Tony, and Sterling Shepherd is highly intriguing to me with all those guys priced between 5.6 and 5.0. If we, we basically have four full games of Daniel Jones up to this point this year, and he has a minimum pass attempts of 32. He's between 32 pass attempts and 40 pass attempts. And we, I'm, I'm under the impression that we can confidently project that to be a Tighter range tilted towards the top end of that range here in this matchup. And when we look at the available playmakers for the Giants, there's, it's really like Sterling Shepard and Kadarius Tony. We have Darius Slayton, who is still dealing with his hamstring injury, who, if he comes back, he's likely running a vast majority of his goes, outs, and comeback routes on the right side. And I saw an interesting stat on the Twitterverse that Daniel Jones has something absurd like an 80 to 90% completion rate to deep left and deep center field, and he has like a 30% completion rate to the deep right side of the field, and that's like where... Oh my
0: God, he's Brian Hoyer all over again.
1: Yeah, it's like he can't turn his neck that way or something. But it's like, it's, it shook me a little bit because that's I was immediately like, okay, don't play Darius Slayton because that's where he's running his routes. Um, but that kind of, I'm half-joking... Uh, But that stat was a little jarring to me, and I did a little bit more digging, and it was like, "What? how is this happening? Sorry, cough break. But the rest of this offense, with Saquon Barkley out, we have Kenny Galladay out, and it's like Evan Ingram, and then Kadarius Toney and Sterling Shepard, and Darius Slayton if he plays. And to me, this is expected to be a highly concentrated passing attack. And that player block only costs you know, 16.1 and is highly intriguing to me. So X, I'll throw it to you again first. What are you seeing from this game? Because I think that it is not being attacked in the most optimal way.
0: Yeah, so first off, like if we just look at games on the slate, right? we have one clear best game environment, which is Kansas City, Washington. Then we have four games that are fairly clustered within a couple points of each other. And just going by Vegas projections here, we have Baltimore Chargers. We have, oddly uh dallas and patriots which has gone up two and a half since the open is now the third highest game on the slate then we have rams giants and we have cardinals browns and then we have some crappy games a little um, that we can talk about later but so this is in that like mid-tier and on a on a slate with only one sort of elite tier game like the mid-tier games are super interesting and to your point like the the ownerships all coming in on one side and we've seen this before with the rams right like we we talked about this multiple times already with the rams or the ownership is on the rams and no and not the not their opponent um and could the rams hit without their opponent keeping up sure right they could they're a concentrated offense that they could hit um but i i too like the other side the rams defense has not been nearly as good this year as we've seen in the past uh the giants are a highly concentrated offense with you know to your point like you've got engram who Is terrible and should draw not much volume uh booker is probably going to draw less volume than saquon did so really it's going to be largely tony and and Shepard. and you know if the if the giants can keep up not only does that push the rams farther but it means that you know you're getting the other side of the game at incredibly low ownership to go with your sort of your chalky rams and so the way that like this this game falls under what i've talked about before in similar spots where the field seems to be essentially saying i can pick the exact right ram who's going to hit the stack isn't going to hit right the ram stack isn't going to hit because stafford's not projecting for a lot of ownership we don't see a lot of like game stacking of this game uh being projected uh people are saying i can pick the right ram just one and no bring back and, and that's just a pretty like a thin needle to try and thread so i would much rather either not play anyone from this game uh, on some rosters and then on other rosters stack it and i'll stack it the stafford way on the ram side and i'll stack it on the daniel jones side too because i agree with you like daniel jones has gotten a really bad rap right like and, and to be fair he's deserved some of that but he's also one of the few like he's been an elite rushing quarterback he's rushed for 197 yards this year in four in basically four games because he didn't play he didn't, he didn't play the full half in the uh, Dallas game. Um he's 5500 so he's priced way down and if you look at his where he scored uh 22.38 fantasy points against Denver a really good defense, 29 fantasy points against Washington, 16 against Atlanta, right? He still has his terrible moments because he's Daniel Jones. Uh 30.78 against New Orleans. So like He's, yeah, he's, his floor is low. The floor of the Giants offense is low. Um, but his ceiling is awesome, right? Like, what other, are, are there a lot of other, you know, 5K quarterbacks, like 5.5 and below, who have legitimate 30 point ceilings? And that's not the first time we've seen it. He's, he's hit 29 and a half fantasy points two out of four games this year. Uh, he, we've seen it multiple times in his past. He's also put up sub ten fantasy games in his career, um, but I'm okay with that, right? Like if he puts up a sub ten fantasy point, and that roster loses, and I'll move on. Um, but I think that it's hard to find thirty point quarterback ceiling at fifty five hundred, and we know that Jones has it. He's shown it to us multiple times, and he has a narrow distribution uh, of pass catchers. So, like, why would we not want to play that?
2: Yeah, I. I will gladly lose money this week from a Daniel Jones bomb. I'd be happy to lose money this week from a Daniel Jones bomb for the certainty. That Daniel Jones can go for a much higher score than his price tag indicates more often than, you know, once every five or six games, like he's going to have big games every once in a while and weeks when nobody is on him are good weeks to try to do that especially if you can target the giants pass catchers who are best to target and speaking of people getting a bad rap the the jason garrett narrative throughout his career as a coach has kind of led to people just laughing him off and avoiding his offenses but if we remember back to those cowboys offenses what is jason garrett bad at he's bad at in-game adjustments he's bad at in-game coaching decisions which he doesn't head coaching decisions which he doesn't have to worry about anymore and he his offense isn't as creative as a lot of these newer offenses but one thing that he's very good at and has always been very good at is game planning or i should say two things he's very good at game planning and so in other words how do we beat this specific opponent and maximizing his most talented players or using his most talented players in order to do that. So it's like the Pat Shermer years with the Vikings, or I forget who he was with before that, but where you kind of know like, okay, this guy's going to use a narrow range of players. So a few weeks ago, the Giants had targets to Saquon and Devontae Booker, Kyle Rudolph and Evan Ingram. And then to only three wide receivers, Kadarius, Tony, Kenny Galladay, and John Ross. One these other games where they have, you know, targets kind of spread out, but it's like, okay, two targets to Caden Smith, two targets to Kyle Rudolph, uh, and then it's you know, and CJ Board always kind of c- would come in and get one target, but then you've got the eight to Galladay, the 10 to Sterling Shepherd. And this is why Kadarius Tony was such a staple of my rosters last week at 4K. Was it's like a blow-up's not guaranteed. It, it's like we, we talked about last year with Deontay Johnson. We're not saying this guy's guaranteed to have a big game, we're just saying the chances are way higher than the field is giving it credit for. And in the case of Kadarius Tony, it was because. Jason Garrett is literally going to come into the game with the game plan built around him. Canaries Tony has dropped back to pass Back-to-back games. One of them, he ended up tucking the ball and taking off for a run. Uh, he's been, you know, given run plays. He's been used in motion. He's used on screens. He's used. And Xander uh, and I had a conversation last night via text where he was asking, you know, since Jalen Ramsey's kind of a movable piece for the Rams, wouldn't it make sense for them to try to get him on Kadarius Tony? He was just, you know, trying to poke holes in that argument. And I said. Yeah, probably. We'll probably see a decent amount of Ramsey on Tony, but so much of what the Giants are doing with Tony isn't really coverable. It's It just plays designed to get him into space with the ball in his hands, and they're going to keep doing that. So, uh, Hilo, I wasn't thinking about Shepard at all until I think it was in the end around. I saw you mention Shepard plus Tony. But when we talk about not overrating target projections, well, this is a place where we can actually feel pretty comfortable saying – 18 to 22 targets is like legitimately reasonable. And if you think that the Rams are going to put up points, you should think that both of these guys are getting looks. So I am definitely like, I'm moving more and more toward having zero. Well, I don't think I'm going to have any Lamar or Herbert stacks at this point because that game is more popular than it should be. And I was on it because I thought it was going to be a little bit sneakier, but I'm, I'm moving more and more toward having multiple Daniel Jones builds. So in other words, OK, two games have been standing out to me all week, uh, Kansas City, Washington and the Rams versus the Giants. Let me focus primarily on those two games and get, you know, one Mahomes and three Heineke or two Mahomes and three Heineke, uh, a couple Stafford, a couple Daniel Jones. And then I-, I might end up pulling in one additional stack from there. And Hilo, I'm going to throw it back to you because this is a, a, something I've seen you mention a couple times. And that is I might have one Wentz stack this week uh you in in the oracle mentioned the idea of the texans and colts being one of the highest scoring games on the slate and i think you mentioned it somewhere else as well but uh you have any take anything else obviously on what i said but also any any takes on that
1: yeah that and what stuck stood out to me the most with that is people have been basically shitting on carson wentz for the better part of two and a half years now but we look at how this how Frank Reich has designed this offense. And now we get T.Y. Hilton coming back. Carson Wentz has 31 or more pass attempts in every game this season. And he's shown a tight distribution between 31 and 38 pass attempts. So when I'm looking at how is Indy likely to attack Houston, well, I don't think that Carson Wentz and that game plan is just going to magically disappear here. And Houston has shown at least some ability recently of being able to play catch up and do it effectively. And we know that Houston is not going to lean into this game from a game planning perspective and be like, hey, we're going to go let Davis Mills throw 32 times. But we know that they have at least shown the ability and the propensity to be aggressive if forced into that situation. And coming off of a heartbreaking overtime loss... It makes the most sense to me if I'm sitting in Frank Reich's shoes to come out with an offense and a game plan that is still designed to attack the shortcomings of my opposition. And for Houston this week, that's pretty much anywhere that they want to go. And then I looked into Carson Wentz and his pass attempts, and I was like, oh, okay, like they're they're letting him cook almost regardless of of game flow and game script. And you know, he, Indy is. India is one of those teams where their, their overall like, their defense is stronger than like, league average, but they are no longer like a lockdown defense. And that's primarily due to the injuries that they've had in the secondary. But we look at how like, this, this game is likeliest to play out. And in my eyes, it's one of the more intriguing games this week because there are a lot of different paths to this game going over rather easily.
2: Okay. Yeah. You know, my first roster this week was actually a Wentz roster and that was just on Tuesday night, kind of getting a feel for what the slate offers. Not, not really paying attention to salary, but going game by game and saying, okay, where might I start thinking about building around things this week in order to have a sense of, of where I'm starting my attacking of this week as far as trying to open it up. And Wentz was one of the first things that stood out to me and just, you know, basically 17 points every game. And then one game of like maybe 19, one game of 26. But if we're talking about who can go for 300 plus yards and three touchdowns with nobody on them and add some rushing yards, right? Like we forget that he had the one dud, but he's playing on, on a high ankle sprain and a low ankle sprain like with no mobility, if you watch that game, if the Tennessee defenders got anywhere near him, he would kind of throw the ball into the ground. And typically what we see Wentz do is scramble around in the, in the pocket a ton and then often take off. You know, he, he averaged over 25 rushing yards a game, or just under 25 rushing yards a game last season. Like this is a guy who's going to get you the occasional four to 10 point game on the ground. If he ever gets a touchdown. Um, but you, you know, you can basically say, Hey, look, he's going to get, if you say 300 yards and three passing touchdowns. He could easily add another touchdowns worth of points on, you know, his five to seven scrambles. I think that the the ankle's getting healthier. This is kind of his fourth game since it happened. So yeah, I, I think that Wentz is very interesting. And I'm, I, that was kind of my starting point last week, Mike Williams was was one of my starting points and then I moved off of him. And so I want to kind of think about, Circling back to say, okay, let me just build like four stacks around Kansas City, Washington, four stacks around uh, the Rams and Giants, and then go with Wentz on the other. And And I also think Brandon Cooks is extremely interesting that game hilo that's a hilo special obviously Um, but a guy who i kind of was crossing off at the beginning of my list because of uh you know a couple disappointing games but last week he's playing new england obviously new england is designing everything to take brandon cooks out of the uh, game and force davis mills to beat them elsewhere but i think we could get back to another 10 12 target brandon cooks game especially if wentz has a big game this week
1: The last thing I'll kind of tie that bow with is Andrew Sandejo is out, obviously the primary, you know, big play safety in that secondary. We have Xavier Rhodes, who's questionable. And this probably will get a couple of chuckles, but Rodrigo Blankenship, their kicker, is out uh, with that hip, whatever was going on from that uh, Monday night game. So you have to think that maybe they'll, you know, maybe Reich will call up a fourth and one and fourth and two on the, Opposing thirty-seven yard line, uh, but it's it's an interesting dynamic to that game where there's still heavy injuries to the secondary, and now the top two remaining members are either questionable or out. So, X, I'll throw it over to you now.
0: Yeah, I mean, like time and time again over the years, we see the team like you know every year in the NFL we've got a couple tanking teams that are just atrocious, right? And this year it's Jacksonville and the Texans, and uh, time and time again, we see winning tournament scores come from just building around the team that's playing the shittiest team, um, right? Like, because these really, really bad teams are just so bad that, like, almost any team can... You know, it, it doesn't happen every week, but every team playing against them has, like, 30-point upside, right? Like, these teams are just so atrocious, and and the Texans are in that boat right now. So, like, if you're doing, you know... It, If you're doing multiple rosters, like, I think that you always want to build some of whoever is playing Jacksonville and whoever is playing Texas. Um, Because, again, it won't hit every week, but like you can you can capture some big upside that way. And like on the Colts, you can play like Carson Wentz. uh, You can play uh, Michael Pittman. They're both cheap. You could even play an onslaught and add Taylor. Uh, You could I don't think I I don't know if Hilton is viable yet cuz I think he's probably going to play a pretty limited role as in his first game off injured reserve. Um but like you could play, you know, if you want to get really weird, if you're doing MME play, you could mix in like Ali Cox who's been having a bigger pass game role and his price hasn't really budged, but his pass game role has been growing. Um if you want to knock tight end out with like you know, as someone that no one's going to be on um, at a volatile position. So like, and then you can bring back Brandon Cooks, who's like the perfect bring back is like the one focal point of the Houston offense. So like, I will always build uh, stacks of whoever's playing the Texans and whoever's playing uh, the, what is it? Um, the Jags. And we saw this last year with the Jets, right? Like last year, the Jets were just atrocious and they're not great this year, clearly, but their defense is playing better. And like a couple times I remember seeing um and we're kind of checking off the team that was playing the Jets. Because I was like, okay, well, they're just going to blow the Jets out. Like there, there's no one to bring it back with. And like this team is just going to crush the Jets and they're going to stop. They're going to take their foot off the gas or whatever. And I think like team versus the Jets like put up huge scores, like turn like easy, like multiple tournament viable scores, like three or four times on the season. Um would the would the game stack have like paid off, uh, including once with the Chiefs when no one was on them because everyone's like, oh, the Chiefs are just going to crush the Jets. And they did. And they scored like 40 points and everyone went nuts. So like don't underrate the the uh, the upside in just playing the crappiest playing against the crappiest team.
2: Yeah. And on on that, I think that we've hit on a lot of things so far that you can say over time this would make you a lot more money than where ownership is going to go, which is why I like this week a lot because the things that are standing out to me are very different from the way the field is looking at this. And, and part of that was, I don't know if you guys listened to my Tuesday Inner Circle segment, but realizing that last week I started from my priority plays and then started thinking about what game stacks I wanted to fit in with those guys. Whereas this week I've I've gone to you know where we should be, which is like, let me think games first and then figure out who fits in around them. So we're seeing the field really think about like they're getting all caught up in their thinking in, okay, who's the best value running back? And they're using all their mental energy on that. And we're over here like, oh, cool. Here's this really good game environment. Here's this really good game environment. Now explosive plays in around that. So while the field is over here looking at, Price so much in salary, and they're like, okay, this guy's forty six hundred, this guy's fifty six hundred. All these guys are stepping into these roles. This this running back's forty nine hundred. Like we're kind of saying, okay, here's the ways we can build around these games. And what's I think what's cool about the Washington Kansas City game, you can't build around all the highest priced guys, and then the you can't you could, but if you don't build around like Kelsey Hill McLaurin, if you build around like one, and then the other. You kind of have to go. To get a third piece from that game down to one of these cheaper guys, McKissick, Ricky Seals-Jones, even Hardman, somebody like that. And so what that automatically does is it starts freeing up salary in other places. And so by the time you get to running back, you've got the salary. This is what I meant by like the salary isn't that big of a a thing for me because same thing with the Rams game, right? Right. If you're not getting cup, you're going down to like, or, or wood 6,100 is also a nice price, but then you're going down to like Van Jefferson or Deshaun Jackson or Tyler Higby. you're opening up all this salary. And so by the time we're getting to the running back position at OWS, we're looking at like, okay, Deandre Swift is in a really good spot. Joe Mixon's in a really good spot. Dalvin Cook's in a really good spot. Uh it's kind of allowing our Chuba Hubbard's in a really good spot. It's allowing us to change the eye level we have. Um, the way that makes more sense for my brain, right? So like Hilo, what's what you're so good at is seeing, okay, here's what the field is doing, and let me like outmaneuver them. And if I start my thoughts from that place, I think this is cool to talk about too. I hope listeners don't mind if we are going a little bit long today, but I start my thoughts from that place. I end up overthinking the strategy and ended up ending up on like bad plays. But the my favorite weeks are the weeks where I kind of start things by saying, "Who do I want to build around? What would my what, what does my optimal roster look like?" And then come out of that and be like, "Oh wow, I'm on totally different things than the field is on. Cool, I'm in great shape. Like I'm 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 out the field without trying to, just from thinking through these games myself. So that's kind of what I feel like this week is." I'm in that type of position. I think OWS as a whole is in that type of position because of the way we're viewing these game environments and game stacks and what that's then leading us to in, in pricing tiers elsewhere. Um, So, yeah, I I don't know if all that made sense, but uh, I think it's a a really cool week because of that and puts us in a good position uh, for some first place finishes this week.
1: I love it. And I think we pretty significantly beat quarterback and, the wide receiver position as well, kind of exploring those different game environments, which is kind of what we want to be doing here as opposed to just sticking to plays. So with that, we'll just jump it over to defense real quick and we'll wrap it up and hopefully have a little bit of time left over at the end for some quick questions. So defense is an interesting bag of tricks here this week. There aren't that many like good on paper plays. The Rams are likely going to have ownership just because they're the Rams against the Giants, but they are priced up so much more than the rest of the field. I want to bring us to the net-adjusted sack rate discussion because that, again, is where I kind of start my defensive journey for the week, we'll call it. And there's a couple of teams that really stood out to me, one being the lions which is interesting to think about all the way down at 2100 but we look at how aggressive they have been on defense uh with 11 total sacks on the season and how that lines up with really the the glaring weakness of this cincinnati bengals offense and it lines up for a high likelihood of three to four sacks uh and then we'll take whatever kind of we get from there um The other one that really stood out to me was the Colts at 3,500. And then the Rams were the third. So X, I'm going to go to you first again. We'll wrap up defense really quickly. Are you seeing any other spots for um, some MME shots at the defense position this week?
0: Uh, I like all the ones you called out. Um, The Lions, I just want to... We've talked some trash about punt defenses on this show. Um, And to be clear, like sometimes people play punt defenses where the only thing in their favor is their price. Uh, and I just want to be clear, in this case, the Lions are 2100 but they have, what is it, like the sixth highest adjusted sack rate on the slate, I believe it is. Um, so, you know, there's, there's more standing out in their favor than purely uh, price, right? Like, they're a cheap defense where the, the sack rate is in their favor um, and speaks to their, their upside. So I like the Lions. Um, the Packers, the Packers' D. And I think the Packers D is a good pivot off the Colts because they're almost, they're priced almost exactly the same Uh, Packers D has the highest adjusted sack rate uh, on the slate because Justin Fields seems to be making a career out of taking sacks. Um, And, you know, someday he'll figure it out. Like, I think Fields has a lot of upside in the long run. um, And I think he's probably going to be a pretty good NFL quarterback. Um, But like so far, like Justin Fields has not even hit 10 DraftKings points yet. Like that's how atrocious he's been. So, uh until he shows some upside there i will happily keep playing defenses against him not because i care about like you know what they're going to score um what the bears are going to score but i think you know he's his sack rate has been just miserable like he just stands too long in the pocket he doesn't take off aggressively and so he just he's getting he's getting brought down over and over again so the packers is the other one that i would add in um and then i think i would probably add in arizona um, we know Arizona is an aggressive defense. The sack rate is a positive matchup for them. Um, they're, you know, Cleveland wants to run the ball really heavily, but without like Nick Chubb. So they've been running the ball like 35 plus times a game, right? Uh, they're not going to give Kareem Hunt 35 carries. I think it's pretty clear. Um, they don't, you know, the other guy on their roster is like mostly been playing receiver. Um, what's his name? Uh, someone help me. Um, Hell's the name of that guy? What is it? Felton. 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 Thank you. Um, so, like, and they'll, you know, they'll get some carries out of, like, you know, to Ernest Johnson, maybe, or something. But like, it stands to reason to me that when you pull the leading rusher out. I think they're probably going to pass a little more. And if you believe Arizona is going to have some offensive success in this game, which I personally do, and it's one of the higher total games in the slate, then I think it's likely that Baker Mayfield exceeds his average of, you know, under 30 pass attempts a game. He's averaging 29 a game. And so more dropbacks means more opportunities for sacks and turnovers. Uh, so I so I, I put them in the MME pool as well. And I also think that also makes, you know, defenses. Defense is not where you should look to get your leverage on a roster in general. Like that shouldn't be the spot that you're hunting for leverage on. Um, But it's a nice benefit that it's a positive defensive matchup that also does offer leverage off of the single highest owned player on the slate in Kareem Hunt.
2: So for for me, uh, that actually brings up two non-defense thoughts that I want to hit super quickly. One is, I think Xander, everything you just said is sharp about browns might pass a little bit more in this spot and landry's going to be back this week but i think that i think it was larejo had no, he's actually not he's not he didn't, okay no, he didn't get activated. Uh, i think larejo was the one who highlighted this and willing to lose but odell beckham is an interesting receiver if you want to play that scenario and say the browns are going to pass a little bit more Beckham is direct leverage off of Kareem Hunt. So I think that's a really interesting one. And we were talking, uh, Marie, you're talking about Justin Fields and the Packers defense also. So I I started a roster two nights ago with Justin Fields and Darnell Mooney and Allen Robinson just to sort of force myself to think through that, that spot. And what I was realizing was this Bears... The Bears team has playoff aspirations. And honestly, Matt Nagy is trying to win his job by proving that he can like outmaneuver this issue at quarterback. They feel like Justin Fields isn't ready yet to just. Take over the offense because that game against the Browns, where he was so shell shocked in the pocket and couldn't react to the pass rush, just threw him off. Like they're like, okay, we can't just put him in that that position where he's dropping back 35 times. But I think that this is the type of week where A, the Packers' defense is a sharp play because if the Packers take a big lead, they're forcing the Bears to pass a little bit more. But B, Over 50% of the targets are going to Darnell Mooney and Allen Robinson. So if if Fields is passing 30 times, he's still like a valuable passer. And I think that eight to nine targets for somebody like Allen Robinson wouldn't be super surprising. Uh, And I think that Allen Robinson is another guy in this kind of cheaper price range who is interesting this week. Um, Going back to the defenses, for me, uh, Lions, Colts, Vikings – I guess Lions and Vikings are my two favorites. Uh, Vikings similar in terms of like adjusted sack rate and chances of getting pressure on Sam Darnold, who can still make plenty of mistakes. Um, And uh, I I noticed the Packers yesterday and then kind of talked myself off of them. So Zandemir, I am grateful for your thoughts. I actually think that's really sharp and uh, Packers should be included in player pools as well. But yeah, that's the extent of what I'm looking at, at defense, totally fine with the Colts. Ah, uh, but probably not a place I'm going. And then Lions, Vikings, and and now Packers. I like that a lot. And it looks like we lost Vikings. Island.
0: Yeah, he said in our uh, channel that he's uh, got a family family issue going on. Apparently, with his wife, okay. not feel, a wife not feeling well and sick kids, so he had to he had to bounce. He, uh,
2: he said his he said his wife had like vertigo and was like laid out on the couch. Early Sounds early week, horrible. So. Uh, Hilo is full time dad on like Tuesday through Thursday, so it's and been he has like
0: 12 kids. So,
2: yes, I believe the exact number is 12 kids. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I was thinking about that today actually. That uh, we've got you with one and me with two, and Hilo over here with 12. So,
0: yeah, that is not hyperbolic at all. 12 children. Um, <laughs> Breeding his own army uh vikings is a really good call i think i totally forgot to mention them but yeah i was i remember going back and forth between vikings and carolina um because they're priced the same uh their sack rates are similar and i yep, think vikings yep. is the better play because uh just i think that they're the favored team um which means they're more likely to face more opposing pass attempts and they uh and, and sam darnold mm-hmm. is a more mistake prone quarterback than kirk cousins
2: yeah. Darnold's still the same. I mean, he's being coached better, but he's still the same guy in terms of his in-game decision-making, you know, from watching those games. So, um, yeah, I like that. I like that, uh, a lot. And do we have anything else or,
0: uh, cute. we have questions, Aaron, you want to hop up?
3: Yeah. Hey guys. I wanted to, uh, add something. The chat's going on over there. Um, And Mike Johnson uh, spoke up about uh, Palmer was drafted to fill that X role if Williams walks in the free agency. Um, So just something to keep in mind. I don't know if you guys want to add anything to that, but that came from Mike Johnson.
2: Uh, yeah. Nothing to add for me. Like I said, I I've been trying to figure out, um, that play. So I think, uh, like as with anything, take any, any news that you can find with a grain of salt. It doesn't mean that he's ready. It doesn't mean that he'll actually be stepped into that role this week, but, um, yeah, I mean, Palmer's been a guy who I've been kind of trying to explore. And I, I think that we would give that like, you know, a little 5% bump of certainty. Um, but not let that be a decision maker. Um, sure.
0: Yeah, i probably have some exposure to Palmer if if Williams is out in like my 150 lineups. I don't think I'd put it on a, a three max.
2: Yeah, I think that if you're playing 150 lineups, you should definitely take some Palmer because if we're looking for the guys who could get under 1%, you know, 20 plus points, that's the type of guy who could do it.
3: All right. And since we're a little bit over, I'm just going to do two questions here. and I've combined a few of them. Um, we had some questions come in about some coaching changes this week. So Arizona is going to be without uh, Kingsbury and their QB coach. And then obviously Raiders with Gruden out. Um, do you guys see those games any differently the way they've been play calling anything you can add to that? Oh man, I will let
0: JM answer that one. He's the the coaching uh, understanding the NFL at that level sort of guru.
2: Yeah. I don't recall who wrote up the Raiders game this week, but Whoever wrote it up. had some, had some super sharp thoughts. It was Mike or Hilo. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, but basically that the Raiders are going to run their same offense. Like that's pr- that's pretty likely. So I wouldn't expect a lot to change for the Raiders. The Cardinals one, I've been playing around with it in my head, right? It's super interesting. Kyler Murray's definitely going to have a lot more freedom this week to make decisions of his own and to kind of decide what the offense is doing, like uh, a la Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady. Um, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know. I don't think Kyler calls his own number more often. I think that speaking of trying to adjust year to year, right? One of the best things that, you can do in DFS is play a sport for the first time and start your research for the first time with no biases about the players. Like it's one of the things that made MLB so easy for me in 2014 was I'd only ever really watched the Red Sox. And now all of a sudden I've got 30 teams that I'm researching and learning new players and and you don't have your biases, um, sort of coming into things. So the, the bias that we all have with Kyler is, oh, he's this dual threat Russian quarterback. And I think what Hilo and Zandemir were talking about last week is super sharp. I think that we shouldn't be viewing – I think we should be viewing him as moving more toward the Russell Wilson, Dak Prescott range, which is this guy can run, but they're trying to throw the ball. So I don't know if him calling his own number means he just – calling plays a little bit more means he just takes off more or if that means that he continues to emphasize what they're trying to emphasize in this offense. And I think that the latter is more likely. They're 5-0, and o, like he's wanting to grow and develop as a quarterback. Like any good quarterback or really good quarterback, he wants to be one of the greats. And so he's trying to continue that development on his own. It's his first chance to be kind of in charge of an offense on game day. And I would think that that would lead to him running the offense. So I'm thinking that we continue to see things spread out. I don't think that it's like, oh, well now he's just going to lean on DeAndre Hopkins a lot, or he's going to run a a whole bunch more. I think that he's going to try to come out and be Cliff Kingsbury on the field this week. And so that's how I'm seeing things. Um, You know, this isn't, Sean McVay out and Jared Goff running things (laughs) into the ground. Like I I think that (laughs) Kyler is probably going to try to pretty much run the same offense. I could be totally wrong on that, but I've been playing around with that and that's sort of where I'm at right now.
0: Yeah. I'll chime in. Like, so I don't know NFL coaching by any means, right? Like I'm woefully ill-equipped to answer this question. Um, But I will say at least for me, I view this as an unanswerable question. Like, you know, JM knows the NFL at such a deep level that he can speak with a fair amount of authority on what he thinks coaches are likely to do. Um, and even though we can't know, he at least can sort of suss out likelihood. Uh, for most of us, I think that's impossible. And this kind of ties into, like, how I think about leather, how I think about a whole bunch of stuff. Like, I try to focus my sort of time and energy on where I feel I can know things and where that time and energy can be spent productively uh, in ways that increase my odds of winning. And so at least for me, and so for most of us here, right, like most of us don't know the NFL well enough to really think about like, you know the impact of a coach being out or a coaching change and how that could affect player usage. Like most of us can't really, uh, you know, theorize that with any real level of predictive accuracy. And so like for me, I just put that stuff out of my mind, and I just try to focus on what I can know. Um, and what I can, you know, the information that I can use to increase my chances of winning and just try not to spend my like time and brain energy thinking about the stuff that I have no control over and can't possibly know. So, you know, I yeah, don't, I, I, don't I, I don't, say that to like shoot down what JM said by any means. I think if you have that knowledge, that gives you an edge uh, because few people have it. But I don't. So that's I just ignore that stuff.
2: Yeah, I, I think that one of the a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago on the pod, Zandamir might have been week week one. You talked about. Anything that helps your critical thinking, helps you become a better DFS player, anything that helps you break out of the standard, at least standard American model, um, it might just be a a standard human condition of always wanting to know everything, instead recognizing that most of life is unknowns, and most of DFS is unknowns. And so that basic... American condition or basic human condition can work strongly to our advantage because we're looking for what are the edges in this skill game. Well, one of the major edges is acknowledging that we know less than we think we do. Mike Johnson sent me a text or email this last week with some really interesting thoughts on for most DFS players, including most OWS players. And he said that something he's seen in discord. He said they would be better served basically acknowledging that their edge is not their nfl knowledge basically acknowledging that they know less about the nfl than they think they do and that's where we get a big edge um and so that idea of being able to say for most of us this is an unanswerable question or for me being able to say okay let me dig into it because i know that I have a better chance of being able to unravel this than most people I'm competing against. So let me give it some time. And then being able to come out on the other side and say, yeah, this is what I think, but I don't know. That's really valuable. And that's a valuable trait to develop. It has to be developed. I've told this story before, but when I was a kid, my mom used to make me repeat after her, it's okay to be wrong. Because I was so in need of being right about everything. And I have so many memories from when I was a kid of somebody saying something to me that I didn't know and me answering, I know, I know. And that type of mindset can be so harmful in DFS. So developing that ability to say, I don't know, I have no idea, and let me use that to my advantage. And most of my competition will act like they do know. That's incredibly important. And is really, that's like the root of this type of question is let's give it some time but also let's be willing to acknowledge when we actually don't know because that's a, a big part of our edge.
0: My BA is in philosophy, so basically, yeah, Socrates.
2: <laughs> the uh, the old philosophy, the the parents love it philosophy major. <laughs> My parents hate it.
0: I was so right, obnoxious boys, when I was
3: philosophy it? major in college. You have no idea. <laughs> That that's a wrap. Jam, why don't you take us out? Hilo's not here, so I'll let you take us out.
2: Odds and dudettes. <laughs> um Thanks for hanging out this week. It was fun to be able to hop on uh they I felt like this week there was enough late news that waiting, uh, or or late news that waiting to develop concrete strategies was beneficial. And so I wanted to be able to hop on this pod and kind of share this time, especially since this is typically family day for us, but it's been a little bit more recovery day this week. So, uh, glad to have been here this week. It was a lot of fun, uh, to be on this pod that I'm typically just a listener on Zandemir. You want to say bye, bye.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Always a pleasure, everyone. Um, I want to know, the some questions that we have uh, recorded that we kind of ran short of time. Um, I'm going to come back around. I don't know if JM wants to hang out in Discord if he has any time. I'll come back around later and try to answer them in the Inner Circle channel. So, uh, Aaron, if you wouldn't mind just leaving that Inner Circle question channel open and I'll just copy paste questions into that later tonight. Um, It's now family time for me and my family, Uh, but I'll try to come back around to all those a little later tonight and just get you some thoughts um for those of you who took the time to ask otherwise i'll see you in discord and at the top of the leaderboards
2: Big for out guys see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend